everybody, it's Thomas Boer, and we are now going to begin reviewing and discussing chapter one of Bavink's The Christian Family. If you missed the introduction, uh, it's recorded on this podcast, and uh, in it, we covered some of Bavink's big picture ideas about the Trinity and the unity and diversity and how that reality is um, expressed in all of creation because God has made things uh, from from himself, from the power of his own being, and, and all creation is, is a, broadly speaking, is a reflection of his own being and glory, and especially understood in man uh, and in mankind. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and then he makes man to rule over the earth, to fill it, and to subdue it. And God says, let us make man in our own image. And it says in scripture, in the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. And so in man himself, male and female, there is a unity and diversity, a uh, two in oneness, if you will. And as Bob Inc. is going to develop, when children come from that union, there's a sort of three in oneness. Uh, also mirroring um, God in his triune nature. We talked about um, how grace restores nature, that when God made everything in the beginning, it was all good and well-pleasing, and that basically grace is getting us back to the Garden of Eden, right, before the fall. It's restoring nature. It's not destroying it. It's not saying, well, that was bad. We need to replace it with something better. It's just going back to that and really in a heightened, culminated, fulfilled sense, right? When the command in the beginning was to fill the earth and subdue it, we get to that not back at the beginning, starting from square one, but after the mission is complete and accomplished in and by and through Jesus Christ himself and his person and work. And as he uh, continues to work by the power of his spirit and his people, Uh, building up his kingdom, working in his church uh, to fulfill that dominion mandate, a right unto the glory of God. And so in glory in heaven, we will be gathered together as as the saints of God, as the people of God, as the bride of Christ, redeemed. Um, And yet that original commandment to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, has been uh, realized and accomplished in and through Christ and his people when we receive the renewed heavens and earth. And so that's sort of what we covered briefly in the introduction. And then we did also, I read a little bit um, of the beginning of chapter one last time. And so just to maybe recap that as well, which should take no more than a minute here. Uh, Bavink begins with the history of the human race, begins with a wedding. Um, and, And he's talking about well, really, Adam being presented with Eve, that Eve is taken uh, from the side of Adam uh, to be a helpmate, to be a helper. And there's this this wedding right at the beginning of creation here. And Adam rejoices and says, this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, and so on. And one point that I kind of harped on at the end of the last um, recording was what Bob Inc. very helpfully brought out, which is that man with God in the garden before the fall, before sin, had everything except one thing needful. And what was that? It was a woman. And so that is a a 
wonderful antidote to this toxic teaching that, you know, you really just need to find your satisfaction in Jesus before you get married. I mean, apply that to anything else. I really need to be satisfied in Jesus and God and my relationship to him before I, you know, eat another meal. Uh, only when I find my full sufficiency for my physical bodily, you know, needs, three square meals a day, only when I first find that in God himself, through Bible reading and prayer, should I eat another meal? It's just a completely nonsensical, illogical thing. But somehow we confuse that uh, when it comes to, you know, marriage and, and dating or courting or whatever you want to call it. Uh, it's There is a right idea, of course, that we have to be personally mature enough to begin seeking a spouse, mature in our Christian faith, but it's usually not presented like that. It's not usually presented as, look, you know, I am not yet in a place as a man or as a woman to be uh, a godly mature husband or a godly mature wife. It's usually, I'm on a higher spiritual level than you because I'm drawing so close to God right now that I don't really need to even think or worry about marriage. And maybe when I really climb this mountain with God in my closet or whatever, then I can go out and get married. I mean, I certainly heard and experienced that when I was a single man and trying to get married. And I, I've, I've seen that with others. I've even seen men strangely take that route. You know, I just need to draw near to God and be content in him. Um, I think we got to be really careful with that because we don't do that with many other things. We rightly understand that every good gift comes down from above, from the father of lights, from God, right? Adam understood that he receives Eve as this gift par excellence, right? This, this wonderful gift from God. And so is enjoying and finding satisfaction in God in receiving his wife, that good gift from the Lord. Well, we need to do that still today and realize that you cannot find in prayer and in Bible reading what you need in a, in, in a spouse any more than you can find by prayer and Bible reading what you need for your bodily physical sustenance in you know, food and drink. Uh, right? It's just a, a category error. Okay, well, let's continue now in chapter one. And uh, I have a few highlights here. And uh, because I decided not to record this right after I read it with my wife, things aren't quite as fresh. So I hope the lack of crispness isn't too obvious in my mind here. Um, but a couple paragraphs in, you know, Bavink says, with the body, man stands in fellowship with the earth. With the spirit, which is from above, man is related to heaven. Both body and spirit are so intimately united within the human person that the human person possesses a unique nature and a unique position among all creatures. In a special sense, a human person is a product of God. A person is his image and likeness, his child and his race. And it's only been recently that I've put much thought into the, the different origins, so to speak, of our body and our souls. You know, God breathes in to man, his soul, uh, but our body is formed for the man from the dust of the ground and for Eve from the body of Adam. And uh, Bavink kind of encapsulates that well here. Uh, you know, we are unique in that sense that we are God-breathed beings bearing his image from above and yet we're also creatures made from the dust of the ground and so we have this this um, 
don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying we're demigods or, you know, um, in between God and the rest of his creation, but uh, there is a sense in which that's true. We're the crown of creation. We're to, as God's representatives, rule over it as creatures, but as the crowning creatures and qualitatively different from a plant or an animal or anything else. And so then taking that reality that, that man, as in male and female, are fundamentally different from all the rest of creation, we also need to look at how man and woman are both similar and the same, male and female, but also how men and women are different. And so we're going to look at that as we go forward here. Um, Bavink says, The first human being, furthermore, was created immediately as a man, neither neutered nor androgynous, but with a specific sex. This came to expression in the fact that although he had been placed in the garden and had abundant provision of everything he needed for living, he nevertheless felt lonely. God created him this way. God says both to himself and from himself uh, that it was not good that man was al alone. Immediately at creation, God implanted within the man's soul the yearning for loving someone who would be like him. And that's when he gets into the need for woman and God creates Eve for Adam, woman for man. And he goes on and says, Within married life and within the family, it is the husband as the head who in his appearance and glory radiates the image and glory of God. And the wife has the calling in obedience to her husband to display his glory. But this in no way contradicts the truth that the woman herself, seen as a human being, bears the image and likeness of God fully as much as the man does. And I don't think any of us are denying that. I certainly hope not. A uh, woman fully bears the image of uh, God and is likewise a glorious image bearer as man is. And, uh, you know, right off the bat, we want to say any, anybody who denies that, that woman is a, um, not really bearing the image of God or bearing it in a completely different way than man uh, is, is, is wrong, is, is an error, uh, and a serious error. Um, but just the same, Bavink says just above that, for although she was desired by the man, she was not created by him, but by God. The woman, just like the man, is a special creation of God, bearing his image and likeness. Even when the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11.7 calls the man the image and the glory of God and the woman the glory of the man, he is certainly not thereby denying to the woman her creation in the image and likeness of God. For there he is not discussing the man and the woman as human beings in general, but rather the relationship of marriage with within which they interact. Now, I suppose you could debate that whether it's just talking about the marital relationship there or not, given the Greek words for, you know, man and woman, husband and wife, uh, man and husband, woman and wife are, are the same Greek words and it's contextually determined. Um, but going with what Bavink says here, uh, within married life and within the family, it's the husband as the head who in his appearance and glory radiates the image and glory of God and the wife has the calling and obedience to her husband to display his glory. You can see because woman was not made by man, she came out of the body of man, but God still is the one forming and fashioning her, that she's still bearing the image of God. She's not a creation of, of man. It's still God's handiwork. The woman is still God's 
handiwork, directly speaking. But from the side of man, the body of man, showing her place and her position and her good and glorious purpose to be a helpmate to the man joining in his calling. Right? But it is his calling and he needs help with it. And so God made the woman. And ladies, um, understanding that God makes everything, does everything for his glory and for his people's good, it is for your good and for your glory and for your joy and delight that you've been made a helpmeet to your husband. And more broadly speaking, women are, by their nature, by their very structure of their bodies, by their um, emotional range and, and, and physical abilities, most equipped to be helpers to men in general, uh, you see God's good design in that. There are certain things that men are not, frankly, capable of doing, that they need the help of a woman in. Man cannot do it alone. Man is not satisfied alone and is incapable alone of fully f fulfilling God's good calling. And so, ladies, when you try instead of doing what God says to be a man, you're impoverishing yourself. You're rebelling against God, first of all. But you don't stand a chance doing what men do. You're not built and made to be a man. You're physically inferior. You can't do, literally, the heavy lifting physically and in some ways also emotionally that men do. But women, what you can offer in emotional depth and sensitivity and nurture and care, you offer something that men really can't, generally speaking, do. Right? We're not, we, we're not capable of. And so man and woman together, that harmony, uh, that, that harmonized complexity in that marriage rounds each other out makes up for each other's lack, just as the whole body of Christ is to do in the church of one another, right? With varying spiritual gifts, so husband and wife round out each other by each doing what they are called to do. Right? The, the, the foot is not a nose, uh, the hand is not uh, a knee bone, so on and so forth, right? You, I'm sure you know the scripture that I'm referring to. Each part needs to do what it is called in doing. And the so-called less honorable parts are still essential workers, right? Let's get a coronavirus reference in there, right? We're all essential workers. Women, you are essential. You're different, but you're essential. Uh, man was not satisfied without you. But what man did not need to uh, scratch his itch or satisfy him was another man, else God would have given him another man. But no, he makes Eve, he makes woman. And that is what is needed. And women, you need men. You need godly men being men, being leaders, being rulers, loving you, caring for you, providing for you. And you, in that context, as Eve was born into a context of a fertile garden with a fertile and strong man, Adam, you beautify that. You enrich and enhance that and help man. And that is what we need in the home uh, rightly understood in the church and in the society, in the world, in the culture. And when that happens, and when the church, and as I believe the Reformed Church is the best expression when it's doing it right, doing things rightly, of, of the true church, the best expression of it, when the church will get its act together, the Reformed Church does, and drives out feminism and egalitarianism, and stands up for what's good and right and true in this, well then the church can start reforming and doing what's right, and be salt and light to 
its communities and its societies and its states and its countries and nations and the glory and good of the kingdom of God will, will be more fully seen and realized. And what is that great good of Christ and his kingdom? Right? Well, salvation from sin and life in Christ, of course. Being brought into the covenant people of God and having the blessings of the new covenant. Salvation and life and so on and so forth. But what does that covenant life look like? Well, in keeping with Bavink's Grace Restores Nature biblical teaching here, it looks like a healthy, productive, fertile family working hard and serving the Lord with gladness where the men are men and the women are women and the children are obeying their parents and the Lord. That's what it looks like because that's what the garden looked like. And now we do it with this rich tapestry and message of redemption woven through it, which only further beautifies it and enhances it as we are now children of God through the body and blood through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ himself. All right, well, let's keep going. Um, oh, Kendall, you're messing me up here. Uh, all right, each with his or her... Oh, why is this blocking my view here? Let me close that. All right. Uh, sorry, technical difficulties here. I'm not a big Kindle user. All right, each with his or her own sex, nature, and position. Bavink says, And even though the woman was not created by the man, she was nonetheless created from the man. Adam was made first and then Eve, both in time and in order. The man preceded the woman. The woman was created not merely after the man, but she was also brought forth out of the man. Just as the earth supplied the material for the man's body, so the man's body in turn supplied the material from which God formed the woman. The manner in which the man was created fixed an unbreakable bond between the human being and the earth. The manner in which the woman received her existence served to place her in the kind of relationship to the man such that she is inseparably bound to him and thereby the unity of the human race is completely preserved because they're together man and woman the woman was created not to be self-sufficient right that's it's simply a created reality of god the woman was created not to be self-sufficient nor to be independent of the man nor apart from his mediation she is not a unique principle and head of the human race, whereas Adam is, right? But she herself was formed out of the man, out of his flesh and blood. The human race is one entity, a body with one head, a building with one cornerstone. And that cornerstone is man, as in male, not female. And again, don't, don't forget everything I just said a couple minutes ago, all the necessary... Um, qualifications and nuances to this to rightly understand what Bavink is saying. You know, this can be grossly mischaracterized, you know, with a cut and paste and post on Twitter um, by feminist leaning, you know, apostolistas <laughs> in the church today, uh, misquoting mis or taking out of context what Bavink says. He qualifies, I'm qualifying and clarifying. And you see, yeah, that's true. It is true, it's biblical, and it's good, and it's glorious, and it's beautiful. Uh, let's continue now with Bavink. He says, in this reality, the man finds no basis for pride. Notice right away the qualifications here. 
For he received the woman whom he desired entirely apart from his own effort, apart from his own knowledge and volition, while in a deep sleep. <laughs> he didn't do this, right? He's asleep. He's knocked out cold, which God had placed upon his soul and body. Though the woman is indeed from the man, she did not come into being through him. Her existence is due not to man, but just like man's existence, her existence is due entirely to God. In an absolute sense, then, she is a gift of God. The greatest gift that God could give to the man who had been created in his image. A gift that the man must therefore receive and value as given from the Lord's own hand. Right? That's what we talked about earlier as well. But remember, so that we don't fall into a theology that says because Eve was created last, therefore she is uh, superior to man and should rule over man. And man, when he sees Eve, somehow finds his telos or his end or his goal in uh, some sort of, you know, gender bending, overturning the established order of male and female and headship and so on. That's not what Boving is getting at. That's not, of course, what Scripture is, is driving at at all either. She is the crowning and highest gift to man, which is great and glorious. But in Eve, man does not see his head or his superior. He sees his greatest gift as a helper. And ladies also understand, to be the highest gift as a helper to man is your great and glorious calling. And man needs to receive woman as such and to treat her with that glorious dignity that she deserves and to value her and to not go off thinking, well, I was created first as a man. I was formed first, then Eve. I don't really need Eve. I'm superior to Eve. I'm better than Eve. She's an afterthought in God. No, no, she was an absolute necessity, man. And you can't do it without her. I know I could not do anything hardly at all well with my wife, without my wife. Only with her help uh, and guidance and love and care. Um, am I able to do the very recording that I'm doing right now? Um, and any good man who has a good wife knows and understands this. Uh, let's see. Ah, there's more I want to say, but let's just keep reading and bobbing here. This is also how Eve was created, uh, sorry, was greeted by Adam. As soon as he saw her, he recognized her. His recognition was a knowledge born of love. He saw in her no alien being, but a being just like himself. She possessed the same nature that he had. She displayed the same image of God that had been bestowed upon him. And yet she was different from him with her own sex, character, and vocation, calling. Like a whoop of joy, like a wedding song, the words came forth from his lips, from Adam's lip. This is now finally flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone. Right? She comes forth out of man and, and man rejoices. Right? We should rejoice in the wife of our youth, men. And not abuse or malign or disgrace her. And women should... Take delight and joy in being a woman in that high calling of motherhood and homemaking. That is your glory. That is your dignity. Don't denounce it. Delight in it. And men, praise your wife in that work. Don't belittle it. You need it. Uh, let's see here. 
I mean, I could just read the whole chapter, but I don't know if there's some kind of copyright violation on that. And um, I did, but you'd probably get tired of hearing me just read anyways. Maybe not because it is Bob Inc. Um, let's go down, skip a paragraph here. Um, he says, together in mutual fellowship, they, man and woman, bear the divine image. God himself is the creator of duality in unity. Right? There's a duality and yet a unity. Within that unity, they are and remain two. Each of the two has a unique nature, character, and vocation. Before the woman was created, the man had already been stationed in the garden and had been called to a particular task and vocation. Right? Man is already there, he's already called, he's already created, and there's probably something, maybe it's making too much of it, but you know, the man leaves and cleaves, right? Uh, ultimately, a woman leaves and cleaves in, in her own way as well, but man created first and for a while independently of woman, you know, it does show that man is able as a single person and created to be a head, um, you know, can go off the college, can go off and start a job, not being under the, the roof of his parents, and it's fitting and proper because man was created independent of woman initially, but needs a woman. And so man doesn't just leave, but he also leaves and cleaves. Right? He leaves and then he cleaves to his wife, to woman. Now, a woman will leave and cleave, but fitting to her womanly nature, right? she needs to do this much more carefully uh, guarded and protected and under the care of her head before she's married, which, is, humanly speaking, is her father or the head of the household. The father, sadly, isn't there. Uh, the mother, whoever it, it may be, but typically the father, right? And so, uh, applying this consistently, you know, there's going to be different debates. You know, if a woman is, is single and isn't married and she's in her, you know, 40s or even her 30s, uh, is she required to still stay under her father's roof? Or can she still, you know, live across the street in an apartment nearby, still guarded, largely speaking, by her father, but not literally under his roof. Um, I don't want to make a hard and fast rule on that. I think that will be determined by wisdom. Some would probably say that, you know, that's, uh, I'm going too far by even opening up the possibility of not being under the roof of the father, even if the woman is single and 70, 80 years old or something. Um, uh, I, I haven't had a daughter who's older than four years old. My one and only daughter is four right now. So I haven't experientially live that out yet. Um, but those are the kind of things we have to think about. And I think I'll just leave that at, at that and let those who've thought about this more uh, maybe develop that further. But you have to think about these questions, right? You have to treat uh, your daughters with more um, care and close guardedness uh, than your sons. Once your sons are mature, you should be uh, training and, and raising your sons to be leaders because they're called to be heads and your daughters to be nurturers and, uh, nurturers and good wives and mothers and to be under another's headship, right? And so if you allow your daughters just to go off and be completely independent, um, well, you're not really setting them up necessarily to come under the headship of, of their husbands, their future husbands. All right, enough pious advice for me. Um, 
As head of the human race, to him, to Adam, was given the probationary command so that, so that in keeping this command he would demonstrate his complete obedience to God. At the same time, along with this command, he received the task to cultivate and preserve the garden. The first included the obligation to develop all the treasures that God had deposited in the earth, and the second involved the calling to protect the entire creation against every hostile power seeking to ruin the creation and to preserve it from the tyranny of destructive forces. This twofold task, that of complete obedience to God and that of cultivating and protecting the garden, was integrally related. A human being can be lord of the earth only when living as servant and child of God. That's a good quote. A human being can be lord of the earth only when living as servant and child of God. Right, men, we too are under authority. We too are like little children under God. Now, that doesn't mean in our role as heads, as husbands and fathers, that we act like servants and children. That's, you know, whatever, a category error. That's a miss. Um, appropriation. But it is to say that before God, we are still his servants and his children and need to approach him as such. And that will certainly enhance and flavor and influence our headship and our leadership as mature men in our homes. Right? And, and if there is a, a, a hyper patriarchy that needs to be smashed, where it goes way too far and unbiblical, kind of like a hyper-Calvinism, when you think of it in terms of soteriology and so on. It's the hyper-patriarchy mentality that needs to be smashed, is where men you know, forget that they are under the Lord and forget that they don't have all-consuming authority. And so men who are not ordained ministers just set up their own home churches and their wife and kids never can do anything or be under any other authority or influence of any other man and the father is is behaving as if he is god and lord incarnate to his whole family and that's just a very dangerous and sick perversion which probably a lot of these more egalitarian and feminist leaning uh, women and men um, are reacting to, and they should react to that, but they should not throw out the baby with the bathwater. They should not throw out the good and biblical teaching because of its abuse. I mean, if we're going to do that consistently, people, we're going to have to do that with basically every doctrine, every true and biblical doctrine in Scripture, right? Because you do realize every true doctrine, because Satan is subtle, I mean, it's how the fall began, by taking something true that God said and adding to it and twisting it and perverting it, Right? We don't throw out the good teaching of God just because it's been twisted and mangled. Um, men are to lead. Men are the heads of their household. And following through on that, biblically and faithfully, all the way through is something we must do. Does that open men up to certain temptations because they have that power and that authority? Does that mean they are more easily able to abuse it since they are allowed to have it, if you want to put it in those terms? Yes. But that doesn't change the fact that that is what God has called us to. And we have to accept the fact that we're all sinners and God has put sinful men in authority all over the place. And that's going to be true until Christ returns. And so we need to encourage men to be good and godly men. We do not need to encourage them to emasculate themselves and to cease being men. Because then you will really see what it is like when God's natural order is so upset that there are no men and the women are trying to play at being men. And we're, we're, we're kind of living that out right now to some degree, aren't we? And it's ugly. It's even uglier. All right.
Uh, let's see. Pavink goes on. A human being can be Lord of the earth only when living as a servant and child of God. Only when the latter is true will a human being be able more and more to exercise dominion in the earth. And that's, yeah, that's the point, right? Remembering whose your ultimate head is, God, Christ alone, can we rightly exercise dominion in the earth, on the earth. The image of God unfolds in world lordship. The image of God unfolds in world lordship. The meek, those who perform God's will and obedience, inherit the earth. Right? The meek are those who perform God's will in obedience. They inherit the earth. Right? Meekness isn't abdicating your duty or, or whatever. It's, it's, it's doing it unto the Lord, doing God's will, inheriting the earth as a result. If this is the calling of the image bearer of God, however, namely to fill the earth and subdue it, to subdue it and exercise lordship in the earth, then the single individual person, even though he may be a man and a son of God, is not capable of exercising that calling. For that, he needs a helper, a woman who does not stand above him to dominate him, nor beneath him as one degraded to the status of a tool for pleasure, but one who stands alongside him, stationed at his side and therefore formed from his side. I've heard that quote in various ways by various authors. It's very helpful, right? Woman is taken from the side of man, picturing his sort of arm-in-arm -arm relationship, but yet still taken from and out of the man to be his helper. All right. Um, let's see here. Just looking through to see what the best thing to to read here is from Bob Inc. Yeah, this this is a pretty important part, so I'll just keep reading here. Man and woman, Bob Inc. says, are both human beings, and yet they are distinct in terms of physical build and psychological strength. Right? So <laughs> it's like you just you can't even publicly say these kinds of things today without getting berated by, you know, Reformed ministers sometimes, it seems. Anyways, so even though they both receive the same calling, within that one calling, each nevertheless receives a different task and activity. The man is called to subjugate under his feet the whole earth in obedience to God's will. He must develop the earth in terms of its goals through knowledge and art, through farming and animal husbandry, through industry and trade, he must bring forth from the earth all the riches of thought and power, of fruitfulness of li and life, which God has hidden within the earth according to his inscrutable goodness. And in voluntary obedience and dependent cooperation, the woman must assist in performing this task. Because man can't do it without the woman. And he can't do it without the woman assisting. Right? Men can lock arms with other men in you know, anything really. I mean, farming together, playing a sport together, you name it. Anything you can think of, men can have a camaraderie. But the assistance of woman is still missing in that. So when a woman tries to become not an assistant, but a fellow head and leader, uh, you, you're not playing the role God has assigned you that is a can't talk, necessary and essential service, right? is needed. 
And man can't fulfill it. A man can't become a woman and try to do this. You are uniquely gifted and told women to be women and men. You're uniquely, uniquely created to be men. And I have to remind myself of that as a man, right? Because we're sinners. And it's easy for us to let women take on our own task as men and to just sit around and whatever, watch TV, play video games, kick back and relax. Women don't have an easy calling at all. Men don't either. But they're both needed and essential and, and they have to harmonize together for God's calling to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it to, to flourish, to happen, to, to occur. Yeah, let, let's redeem that word flourishing, right? It's used so much by the squishy progressives, right? True flourishing is man and woman being man and woman together for the glory of God through Christ Jesus. All right. Um, yeah, the woman must assist in the fullest and broadest sense, physically and spiritually, with her wisdom and love, with her head and her heart. Right? It's not just physical menial labor. Women have things to contribute in what they say and in what they think and in their perspective and how God has wired them and in their physical nurture and love and care. They assist, women assist, in procreating the human race, in nurturing children in the fear of the Lord, in fostering a kingdom of rational and moral citizens, and thereby assist in bringing the earth into subjection to the human race that comes forth from her. Right? I mean, this is really good stuff from Bavink here. Uh, we perform our function as a sacred service to God. We share a precious calling. Label at a, uh, we labor at a single divine work, Bavink says. Um, in order to make such unity, fellowship, and cooperation in soul and body both possible and real, God created the woman from the man and for the man, 1 Corinthians 11, 8, 9, 11, 8 and 9, but also simultaneously unto the man, even as he created the man unto the woman. God made it two out of one, right? The two, man and woman, are made out of one. That is the man, because Eve is taken from the man. The one is man, Adam. And then from that, two are made, because Eve is taken from Adam so that he could then make the two into one, one soul and one flesh, the leaving and the cleaving. That, that, that harmonized complexity, that unity and diversity, that diversified unity, whatever way you want to think of it, the one and two so that two can be one, that perfect bond and harmony, that's what God has made. And, and when a man tries to be a woman or a woman tries to become a man and you have two women or two men, you got a major problem. It doesn't work that way on so many levels. <laughs> um, so so-called, you know, what, what Doug Wilson says, gay mirage is exactly that. There is a such thing as gay marriage. It's a mirage. It's a, an illusion that has all these promises as you're walking in this dry desert and you see this oasis and you get to it and it's dryness. And then you just want to give up and die. <laughs> um, we need man and woman together. This kind of fellowship is possible only between two. From the very beginning, marriage was and is by virtue of its essential nature monogamous. Another good point, right? We don't bring in multiple marriage partners to this. It's monogamous, an essential bond between one man and one woman, and therefore also a lifelong covenant, indissoluble by human authority. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man put asunder. A man separates from his parents, forsakes father and mother, and cleaves to his wife, but he never abandons his wife. 
Love for parents is surpassed in both intensity and extent by love for one's wife, right? I'm not leaving and cleaving to my father and mother, not anymore at least. When you grow up as a man and as a woman, you cleave to your spouse. Such love is stronger than death. No other love resembles God's love so closely or reaches such height, right? That's why marriage between a man and a woman is a picture between Christ and the church, because that is a love and a bond that exceeds and surpasses all other loves and all other bonds. And so it's very sad to see when a father and mother, a husband and wife, love their children more than they love each other. And the children know this and recognize this. And a lot of so-called good and happy marriages aren't really so good and happy. It's just that the lack of love between father and mother is shielded by their lavishing their love, sometimes in ways that aren't perfect, perfectly good, on their children. Now, thank God for fathers and mothers who at least have enough decency to stay married and love their children. But what a pity and shame on them for not loving each other and working, doing that hard work of loving each other as one flesh as they should. And so think about that. The cultivation of our love for God is our highest calling. And then the next highest calling is what pictures that highest calling, which is our love for our, our wives, men, and women, your love for your husbands. Um, we must be working hard at those two things. And if we work hard at that, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, and first and foremost, your neighbor is your one flesh union with your wife. <laughs> if you're working hard at those two things, in many ways, everything else is going to fall into place. And conversely, if you fail to focus on those two things, first and foremost, your love for God, and then your love for your spouse, and, and being a, a good man of God or woman of God, being a good person yourself unto the Lord and to your spouse. Um, you can do anything else excellently, but if you don't do those things first rightly, you're going to fail. No matter what accolades you get, no matter how much money you make, no, ma no matter how well you hide your lack of love for God and your spouse, um, eventually the cracks are going to show and the lack of a sound foundation is going to be revealed and the house of cards is going to come tumbling down. How do you like those metaphors? All right. Um, let's see. The kind of fellowship... Uh, did I read that already? No, I didn't. This kind of fellowship is possible only between two. From the very beginning, marriage was and is, by virtue of its essential nature, monogamous, an essential bond between one man and one woman. Okay, I did read that. Sorry. Um, let's go on down then. Upon this fellowship of love, then, God has bestowed his blessing in a special way. He is the creator of man and of woman, the inaugurator of marriage, and the sanctifier of matrimony. Each child born is the fruit of fellowship, and as such is also the fruit of divine blessing. The two-in-oneness of husband and wife expands with a child into a three-in-oneness. Father, mother, and child are one soul and one flesh, expanding and unfolding the one image of God, united within threefold diversity and diverse within harmonic unity. Right? This is, uh, you know, how the Kindle books will show you other people's highlights. This has been highlighted 38 times, which I guess for this book is quite a bit. Father, mother, and child are one soul and one flesh, expanding and unfolding the one image of God, united within threefold diversity and diverse within harmonic unity. All right. We're almost done, actually. This three-in-oneness of relationships and functions, of qualities and gifts, constitutes the foundation of all of civilized society. 
the authority of the father, the love of the mother, and the obedience of the child form in their unity the threefold cord that binds together and sustains all relationships within human society. You see how important and foundational this is? The, the family, father, son, child, getting that right. If you get that right at the home, you're going to be more inclined to apply that consistently and rightly outside of the home, in the church, and from the church into the world, right? And when that isn't done right in the home, it's going to be done poorly in the church. It's going to not be done at all in the world. And uh, civilization is going to collapse. Wars are going to ensue. The kingdom of God is not going to be as manifest. And the prayer, that kingdom come, that will be done on earth as it is in heaven, is going to be delayed or less realized for a time at least. And that's a terrible thing. That's an anti-Christ, anti-gospel kind of thing, right? I mean, that, that, that's no small thing. We're talking about kingdom work here when we're talking about the Christian family. Within the psychological life of every integrated personality, this triple chord forms the motif and melody. No man is complete. Now this, I want to touch on this actually, and this is like the last, second last paragraph in the chapter. I've got some time here, so we're going to dwell on this for a bit. No man is complete without some feminine qualities. No woman is complete without some masculine qualities. And to both man and woman, the child is held up as an example. Okay, we're going to have to touch on that, but let me keep reading. We're going to have to labor in that for a second, but let me keep on reading. These three characteristics and gifts are always needed in every society, and in every civilization, in the church and in the state. Authority, love, and obedience are the pillars of all human society. Authority, man's authority, love, the wife's love and nurture, obedience, the child's obedience, are the pillars of all human society. Um, yeah, well, I guess we'll pause there and talk about this now. So, I've seen in the Genevan Commons, which I'm a proud member of, I have seen elsewhere, you know, those who say men do not have a feminine side or their feminine side is their wife. And, and I've said probably the same thing too and agree with that wholeheartedly. But we have to make sure what we mean by that is not to say that men, you know, don't bear the fruit of the spirit that is most centrally located and more, most centrally fitting in the woman. All right, now, what do I mean? What, what, what am I saying by that? Well, if we can recognize that uh, compassion, empathy, and nurture, these type of things are more central to the woman, we have to also be able to recognize that they are still necessary and important in the man. Now, the man will express them as a man, it should at least, right? Which is to say, they won't be as central. <laughs> they won't be as defining of him, right? And the brew and the mixture and the ingredients that is a man, toughness, um, fortitude, drive, determination, 
should be central defining qualities of the man, but tempered with, yeah, empathy and nurture and care and tenderness. Both have to be held together. Now, I think the error is denying that one is more properly, properly central to the man and the other is more properly central to the woman. There is a centrality that we have to recognize. But the other error is saying that what isn't central doesn't matter or isn't even in man at all or isn't even in woman at all. There, are, there is a feminine grit that is needed, a feminine determin, de, uh, determination and perseverance. Hello, childbearing. A lot of men in war and scripture or just dealing with sin and struggles throughout the Old Testament and as well in the New Testament, the picture of that struggle for men is uh, described as a woman in the pangs of child labor. Right? So there is a diversity, but an underlying unity between man and woman. Okay? And so I, I will say that I think some of the talk and rhetoric at least can appear to verge on machismo and macho man mentality at times that I have seen. And I'm sure somewhere I'm guilty of as well. And that stuff is very, um, yeah, it's just disgusting. And so I do think that should rightly be condemned because um, it's just, you know, bullheaded. It's just stupid. <laughs> That's what it is. And you just give legitimate concerns to the egalitarians and feminists when you do that. Um, and so I think that's a good word of caution there. That's why I'm saying it. And I say this, by the way, uh, recognizing that there are men who I would say maybe can sometimes sound like they are in this area, who also are, are stronger men than I am in the more central things in some ways, um, without doubt. Uh, well, let's just, since we're talking here, let's get into some of the nitty gritty stuff, I guess. Um, for me, as a man, it is more central to me to provide and protect my family. Uh, a woman has her own way of providing and protecting as well, though. But they're different. If there's a leak on the roof, which I've had at my previous home, it behooves me as a man to get over my fear of heights, <laughs> to climb the ladder, to get on the roof, and to fix the roof. Or do what I can to fix it, at least. And if I can't fix it, then to get help, probably from another man, to, to help me fix it or to fix it, to, to hire him to, to fix the roof or whatever. If I go up there and send my wife, even if she's not afraid of heights, and even if she's more um, adept at climbing roofs and so on, that's, that's kind of unbecoming of me. Now, some may argue that, you know what, uh, it's not wrong for a woman to be on a roof. And I'm not, I'm not even saying it's wrong for a woman to be on a roof. Um, but I am saying it is fitting for me as a man to do this job here because it does put you in some degree of, of danger and requires some physical strength. I mean, I remember, <laughs> and, and believe me, people, I don't like heights. Um, I think you could even argue I was a bit too motherly protected as a child. And so that combined with my natural disposition of, of being a bit unsteady when I climb up high places and, you know, not really climbing a lot of trees as a kid and so on, I didn't develop that ability and didn't sufficiently overcome that fear as a child, um, that it's, you know, bit me in the butt a little bit as an adult. Um, I did get the courage to climb my very low and flat roof. That shouldn't be too scary. <laughs> and go up there and with the help of my dad, um, you know, put a tarp and some different things up. And my good pastor in North Carolina um, helped repair my uh, ceiling that collapsed and um, 
uh, more like I helped him because he really knew what he was doing. And I learned from that. And older men are teaching younger men like myself. And hopefully I glean from that knowledge and, and gain ability and next time fumble my way through it as, as the man in charge and help teach my sons and, and get better at it and so on and so forth. And there's this good cycle that's going on here. Um, but if my wife, just getting back to the point of central things that are more central and more becoming or unbecoming, if my wife had a fear of heights, that would be far less of a shameful thing for her than it is for me, right? Because it's more fitting for me as a man to need to overcome that for the duties and callings that I have in my life, like fixing a, a leaky roof. I, I really don't know why that even should be controversial, uh, but it is. Uh, to me, it's, it's kind of obvious on the face of it. Um, cooking. I, 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 I kind of find cooking an inter interesting area because I think men can cook and women can cook, although I think probably overall it's more central for a woman cooking in the home. But I, I, to me, that one that kind of transcends this a little bit more than, than others. But I do think it's a bit more of a shameful thing for a woman to just, you know, have a fear of cooking, have no skill in cooking, have no desire to learn how to cook or to, you know, knit or crochet or something like that than it is for a man. I also think it's less essential say, you know, does every single woman have to, you know, crochet? I, I don't think so. Or knit? I don't think so. Um, but is it more fitting for the woman to be the knitter and crocheter than the man? I, 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 yeah, I do think so. <laughs> um, right? We can look at the Proverbs 31 woman and, um, you know, the lady working for hands and making clothes for her children and, and, and all these things. And it's, it's ascribed to the woman and not the man. And if we went back to the good old days where you couldn't go to Walmart, then all of a sudden, yeah, I would have to become much more of a lumberjack than I am and learn to work with tools better than I know how at this point in my life. And my wife would have to develop certain things more as well. And so we live in a first world country and the modern technology and conveniences are a blessing, but they're a double-edged sword as well, right? Uh, the modern conveniences can make, um, can blunt the edges of our masculinity and our femininity if we let it. Now, that doesn't mean we reject it and become, uh, you know, Neanderthals or, um, what do you call it, Luddites or whatever that, that don't embrace these things. We do, and we are thankful for them, but we have to be on guard that, and, you know, we, get, we, we begin to think that um, men can be women and women can be men, that kind of thing. So there are certain um, emotional um, traits that are more central to women than they are to men as well. Right? That's why we talk about an effeminate man as an ungodly man or as a masculine leaning woman, as, as a butch woman, as it's sometimes put, and it's unbecoming and it's unfitting. Um, you know, I, there's, there's plenty of applications that you can, can make to this. Uh, I think in, a, in sports, you know, men can be driven and pushed to the breaking point in a way that um, a woman could not be. And then you get to the discussion of what sports women can and cannot rightly participate in, if it's fitting at all for women to participate in sports. And I'm not, I don't want to get into that level of it right now. Uh, I do think clearly there's some sports, boxing, for instance, that women just, there's no place for that. It's disgusting to watch uh, women beating and brutalizing one another. But men's bodies are hardened and designed to take a beating, in, in a sense, if you will, right? whereas women's are not. Um, so, you know, it, it's just, it's more fitting for women to, you know, 
play rough and tumble sports than it is for, it's more fitting for men to do that than for women. And our bodily constructions are also a window into our souls and our souls construction. Men are to take the take lead, take charge, be strong, be firm. When spirits get low, men are to raise them up and lift up the spirits of their wives. And when men get frustrated and they're calling in their duty, women are to be tender and compassionate to their husbands and to encourage and comfort and nurture them as well. And there is a place, of course, where a woman or where a man has to be nurturing to his children and to his wife, but it's still coming bleeding through that more central, strong man characteristic that God has given men and vice versa for women. I, hopefully I'm being clear here. I, I could have said this a lot more um, with more precision of language if I had thought about it more clearly beforehand. But I, I think in my diarrhea of the mouth here, you're getting the point. And I think what Bob Inc. says here is very helpful in that area and worth spending all this time on. Um, father, mother, and child harmonize and perfect one another, right? Um, no man is complete without some feminine qualities. No woman is complete without some masculine qualities. And to both man and woman, the child is held up as an example, right? Matthew 18.3, which I believe is that passage on having a childlike faith. So what's central to man is being a man. What's central to a woman is being a woman. What is central to a child is being a child. But we're all also learning from one another. But we're doing it without losing what we are. Men don't learn from women and have feminine qualities by becoming feminine, right? Women learn masculine uh, uh, qualities and bear them, but they bear them in a feminine way. And that's not speaking with a forked tongue. That's not speaking contradictions. That's making a distinction here, right? Same thing with children. They learn women, young girls learn how to be women from their mothers. And they learn also what to look for in a man from their fathers. And boys learn how to be men from their fathers and what to look for in a godly uh, wife and their mothers. So yes, authority, love, and obedience are the pillars of all human society. But righteous authority is most fitting to the man, most central to the man. This love and nurture is most uh, central to the woman. And yes, obedience is most central to the child in that father-mother-child uh, triangle. <laughs> All right, so the final paragraph, and I'm running out of time rapidly here, the final paragraph in Bob Inkin, we're done for this first chapter. Somewhere a poet has celebrated the eternal feminine. His poem could just as well have celebrated the eternal masculine and the eternal filial. For every good and perfect gift in man, woman, and child comes down from above, from the Father of lights, with whom there is no shadow or variation due to change. James 1.17 Every human being has been created as a human being, but also as a man, as man or woman or child, each a self and yet in mutual fellowship in the image of God. Right? And that's one, the one final point I'll note also is that, you know, Jesus speaks of gathering like uh, her, his children like a mother hen. And women do bear the image of God as well because in God himself, feminine qualities are ascribed to him. It, it, by that I mean, like what Jesus says, as a hen gathers her you know, her brood, her children, so I would like to gather my people, right? So if that can be said of Jesus, if these things can be said of God, men, we need to be able, as men, to still be able to, to, to have that kind of care and compassion as well and hold that line clear. It's so easy to get on the wrong foot and go off on this. We must be faithful. We must stand firm. Well, I hope you enjoyed this. 
And next time, we'll look at chapter 2 of Bavink's The Christian Family together. God bless.